Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bible, I would ask that you would please open it up uh, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're continuing on in our series, Sent, here in, uh, in Acts and diving into this next uh, chapter. And before we get to our portion of Scripture today, uh, I just want to remind each and every one of us that we are fast approaching cold and sickness season. We are fast approaching. And one of the things that I hate the most is when I feel the oncoming symptoms of a cold. Anybody else resonate with that? Uh, I think I hate the symptoms, the oncoming symptoms, more than I actually hate the cold itself. Uh, knowing that it's coming, right? The, the tickle in the back of your throat, or, or, or maybe uh, a cough, or, or maybe a little bit of, of cloudiness in your head, a headache. Something happens for each and every one of us. And then every one of us is then faced with a dilemma. Do I take Zycam? Do I take zinc? What is it that do I try to overcompensate with my vitamins now that I'm starting to feel sick? Some people swear by taking Zycam or, or zinc, that that's the way to go. Others swear by essential oils, and they're like, this is the only way to go. Now, I, I have friends that are in the medical field. Uh, one specific friend who is a pharmacist, that every time that we would have these conversations when we lived in Florida, they would always mock those people. Uh, the people that use Zycam or the people that use zinc or essential oils. And their response every time someone would ask them would be this. Well, you might as well be rubbing crystals all over your body. You might as well sprinkle moon dust on your food when you would eat. And it was, though it, it was just uh, to poke fun at those people, uh, that was just his perspective on it. Now, what's worse then myself or Bree getting sick is when one of our kids or multiples of our kids get sick. At the parents who have had multiple kids or have a kid, you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Dealing with sickness in a child is no fun whatsoever. Uh, side note, don't bring your kids here if they're sick, please. Um, just, just throwing that out there. Now, I tell you that I tell you that this morning because I want to give us four symptoms. I want to give us four symptoms or signs that the Spirit of God is at work inside of you. Four signs or symptoms. And so we find these in the, the conversion story of Paul in Acts chapter 9. And so if you would, turn with me there if you're not there. Uh, if you are there, say amen. amen. All right, let's pick up in verse number one. It says, But Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest. And he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men or women, he might be able to bound them and bring them to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground. And for those of you who have a physical Bible, I, I would just encourage you to underline that phrase, in falling to the ground, because it's important. 
And falling to the ground, Saul, he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, first of all, I want you to please take notice of something that's often overlooked here in the text. Jesus, notice how Jesus takes persecution against the church. Did you see what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? He said, me. Why are you persecuting me? Never in scripture does Jesus see the church as an it or a building. He sees the church as himself, as one with himself. He is so united to the church that they are one and the same. Now, that's going to throw Paul off. And in just a moment, Paul's going to say, and who are you? Like he asked the question, who, who is this that is speaking to me? But there is no separation between Jesus and church. And I point this out, one, so that we not only understand there's no separation, but I also want to say this to you. Those here, those online, those who will listen to this later, there is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to the body of Christ. Amen? No separation. Jesus calls the church his bride. So you can't love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you could tell me, hey pastor, you're great. We want to have you over for dinner, but we hate that wife of yours. We can't, we can't do that. And I say this to us this morning because there are so many Christians in our culture that say that they love Jesus, but they're only marginally involved with the body of Christ. Marginally. And, and so what, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that you need to get plugged in in a church home. We would love it if this was it. If you made this your church home and you partnered with us through membership, but you need to be involved in ministry somewhere because the Bible tells us that every early Christian in the first church, the early church in the book of Acts, every single member was a contributing member, meaning that they served and they gave of their time, talents, and treasures in every way that they could think of. So now let's pick back up in verse number five and see what happens. And he said, who are you, Lord? Saul, this is Saul. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, I want us to just stop again. Later, Paul is going to recount this exact moment when we get to Acts chapter 26. And he reports something else that Jesus says to him here. And he, he says it like this. It's going to come to the screen. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Or in some versions it says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Okay? And a goad here in scripture was a prod that was jabbed into the back end of an ox. And oftentimes the ox would kick against them because it was, it was painful. Well, what on earth has been prodding Paul or Saul. What has been prodding him? Do you guys remember just a few chapters ago when Stephen's death happened in front of Saul and he allowed for it to happen? In fact, the people laid their jackets at Saul's feet as though he was saying, go ahead and do this. Saul has unanswered questions about Jesus. 
The, the way that Christians die, he's seen it over and over and over again, that they, they die with joy because they're dying for Christ. It didn't make any sense to Paul. These goads were, were bothering Paul. They were wounding him, and so he was kicking against them. Now look at verse 7. He says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Do you guys get the picture? Do you see the picture so far in the text? Saul, this mighty persecutor of Christian, now kneeling before God. Why do you think I told you to underline that he fell to the ground? There was an act of submission that we see Saul, the one who seized the Christians, is now seized himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul, the hammer that broke others, now himself broken on the anvil of Christ. Saul would soon change his name to Paul. Do you know what the word Paul means? Small. S-M-A-L-L. Small. Saul was a very strong Jewish name. It was the name of the first mighty king of Israel. And now Saul the mighty has become Paul the small. Look with me at verse number 10. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now this is a different Ananias than the one that was struck dead in the church. Completely different one. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. And it's also, please note this in Scripture. He's heard about this man and how, the, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, before we dive any further into the text. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us um, a, a freshness to this possibly common portion of Scripture. God, that you uh, would illumine what we need to learn this morning. And if there are scales that are blinding us from these, truth, these truths this morning, Lord, I pray that you would remove them. Holy Spirit, come and, and do a work in us in this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now I want to now turn our attention to these four signs or, or symptoms that show that the Spirit of God is working in you. The first one I want you to note is that God has been pursuing you. God has been pursuing you. 
Paul had the goads that were already prodding him. And some of you could possibly be sitting in here right now or listening online and you're experiencing the exact same thing. Maybe you are here today and you have unanswered questions about life or maybe unanswered questions about death or God himself. Maybe you've been a Christian and yet you've seen joy in another Christian friend's life as they've gone through pain and sorrow and suffering And you look at that joy and you've thought to yourself, I don't have that. Why don't I have that? Or maybe you've been a part of a church circle where you have experienced love and grace and forgiveness, etc. And and you said, "I I want to be used in that way, but you're not. Maybe you're here this morning and it happened again during the worship time where you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit and he was already bringing things to your mind that need to look different in this life. And it's no accident that you that are sitting in this room and watching online are here today. No accident at all. Sometimes in this life, those goads Those things that are prodding us are painful and we have a tendency in our flesh to attempt to resist them and kick against them. C.S. Lewis, you all know that he's my favorite author. He was an atheist literature professor at Oxford when he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he's written a lot about after he became a Christian was how he could see that God was constantly pursuing him the whole time he was an atheist. He said that it was extremely painful. And one of the things that he says is that I was the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England In one of his books called The Season of Joy about his life, he says that I felt like God drug me into the kingdom, kicking and struggling and resentful and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. A little bit later in C.S. Lewis's life, he begins to write what at the time they thought was going to be a piece of work that was going to go nowhere. One became one of his greatest pieces of writing ever, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the series, he wrote a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I've mentioned it before. I've even explained a little bit to you. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he tells the story about a young boy named Eustace. He's one of the main characters. That boy has such an evil heart and does wicked things, and he becomes a dragon in the book. He wants to escape near the end because he understands that his life is now miserable, that he is a dragon. And so he goes to Aslan, the lion in the the series, the, the Christ figure. And Aslan leads him to this fountain of pure water to bathe in. And Lewis writes this in Eustace's voice. But literary scholars have said that this is actually C.S. Lewis talking about his own experience of coming to Christ. It's going to come to the screen And I want you to bear with me as we read through this. It says, The water was as clear as anything. And I thought that if I could get in there and bathe, that it would ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. And so I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully. 
And in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. And so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that the skin on my feet was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just like it had been before. And in the book, Eustace repeats this process a second time. And he repeats the process a third time in growing increasingly filled with despair. And then this happens. The lion says, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought that it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done to myself the other three times. Only they had not hurt, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught a hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything but for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all of the pain had gone. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. Maybe you're here this morning. And God is ripping away the skin from you. He's prodding you about something in your life. And it's painful. But I want you to listen for just a moment. Don't write. Stop looking at your phones. I want you to look right up here. I know it's painful. The, the prodding is painful. But it's not punishment. It's not punishment. It's not because God hates you. It's actually the opposite. It's because he loves you. He loves you. He's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to bring you to himself. He's trying to bring you to a place where you can experience love and joy and peace and patience. It's not retribution this morning. It's restoration. And so I ask, are you feeling the goads? Are you feeling the goads in your life? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Because God has been pursuing you. God has been pursuing you, which really leads us to the second symptom or, or sign is that we're oftentimes blind to God's pursuit of us. We're often blind. You know, Paul's blindness here in the text, the, the, the scales that cover his eyes were a picture of every person that is separated from the goodness of God. And there are primarily two spiritual blindnesses that are, that are talked about or maybe seen in Scripture. And the first is irreligious, irreligious blindness. Now these two are not going to come to the screen, but I do want to talk about them with you. Because the irreligious blindness in a person says that you believe that your way is better than God's or you don't need God at all. And when you're in that place... It, you begin to pursue what the Bible calls sin. This may seem 
like an elementary thought, but did you ever recognize what the middle letter in sin is? It's I. The middle letter is I. I'd rather be doing what I want because I know better than God. And at first, things are great, right? Sin can be a lot of fun. When I, when I was a teenager, um, I used to attend an old country church with, my par- uh, with, with our neighbors. And it was a Mennonite church. And um, I used to go pretty regularly with, with the neighbor kids. And, and there was an old, uh, and, and I don't say this in a mean way, but he was an old guy that used to preach to the teenagers in, in the youth ministry. And it, it seemed like on a, on a weekly Wednesday night, he used to say to us, sin, sin ain't fun. Sin ain't fun. And he had this real, like this southern draw when he would say it. And every single time he said that, I, I thought, well, then you ain't doing it right. <laughs> but then one day you wake up and you realize. You wake up and you realize that you have a string of broken relationships. And you realize that you're truly joyless. You can never meet the right guy or the right girl. You think that the the location where you're living is just a disaster. And if you just move to another city and start over, that everything is going to be okay. Or if you just quit your job because something got hard and and you do do another job, that everything's just going to be okay. And life seems to be getting more and more and more complicated. And finally you realize that this entire time you've been blind to the truth. You've been treating God like he's been an enemy and he's not. It seems like more and more I'm talking to people that fall into that category. And I say this all to say that I hope that you see that and you quit kicking against the goads today. That you stop, that you turn to Jesus because he can give you freedom and situations that you feel like you're completely powerless to to move through or work through. But God can give you that power to overcome the sinful nature inside of you. Don't be irreligious. But at the same time, don't stand in the form of religious blindness either. Because the religious blindness says, I think that I'm good enough to earn God's approval. That if I just try hard enough, if I, if I keep the rules well enough, then God's just going to, he has to accept me because I did all of it. I want to give us a quick theology lesson this morning. Two things happen to us when we sin. Two things. Spiritually, we die when we sin. We die. Our love for God dies and we begin to worship all kinds of things in the place of God. The human heart, as John Calvin said, becomes an idol factory where we constantly come up with things that matter more to us than God does. And the result of that 
is that God's laws to love and serve and to glorify him, they become unnatural to us again. We even go to the point where we begin to resist God's laws. And when we do try to keep them, we end up chafing against them because our desires have been corrupted. And we begin to desire the wrong things. And when we begin to desire the wrong things and we follow through in those desires, what comes in but shame and guilt into this life? And you are riddled now and you know that something inside of you is wrong. And we in our humanness have a tendency to turn to our good works first before we turn to Christ. But what does that really mean for us? When we turn to our good, we we turn to like, oh, I just sinned. I better hurry up and read my Bible. I I, I just went out and and got drunk and and did all of these, these bad things. I better hurry up and quickly say a prayer as though those things are some sort of penance that's gonna take away the sinfulness inside of us. And what that really means is that our good works are actually done for our own self justification. It means that we're ultimately self-interested in the good things that we can do. And the problem with our works, apart from the Holy Spirit in us, our works are hypocritical because they cover up the very condition of our heart. And ultimately, they're just selfish. They're often done for pride They're often done to prove to ourselves and to others how good we really are. That's what Martin Luther called the evil of our good deeds. How many of you know who Martin Luther is? One of the uh, fathers of Reformation in, in the 16th century. Martin Luther said that we need to repent of our sins, but we also need to repent of the bad motives of our righteousness. And so good works done from a spiritually dead heart and as an attempt of self-justification, you know where that leads you to? Weariness and constant comparison. And that comparison and that weariness will lead you to pride and despair. And that pride and despair ends up leading you to jealousy And that jealousy ends up turning into hatred and fear. And that hatred and fear ends up turning into forms of violence. And that's why religious people like Paul are the meanest people on the planet. I've been in ministry for so long. And some of my my favorite people to talk to are people who say that they're devout atheists. And every time I talk to an atheist... Most generally, they will come back with the problem of religion are religious people. They're religious people. And I, on this side of it, I'm like, man, we can definitely agree on that because I take the same stance. Religious people are a detriment to society. They are a detriment to Christianity and to Jesus Christ. But, but, there is a contrast And that contrast is the gospel. Because the gospel was a gift of grace. Jesus Christ dying in your place. Paying the penalty for your sin. 
clothing you in his righteousness and then giving us in the resurrection the power of a new life and a new heart. We used to tell our children's ministry in Florida that the word grace meant God's riches at Christ's expense. And when Paul experienced that, when Paul experienced God's riches at Christ's expense, it changed his heart. He was blind, but now he could see. His spiritual sight consisted of a sense of wonder instead of being entitled and pride-filled. Paul was filled with so much wonder, he was saying, I can't believe God would save me. I want to tell you something this morning. I was just talking with my wife about this this week. You know, I get disappointed in myself often. Does anybody else know what that feels like? I told my wife that I thought at this point in my life that I would have progressed further in the Christian life. But I haven't. I told her that I, there are mornings where I don't wake up a man who loves to pray. There are mornings when I don't wake up a man who loves to pick up his Bible and read. There are days and and moments where I struggle with self-control and materialism. And then there are other days where I'm so surprised at the very jealousies of my own heart. Half the time I want to love God and I feel like it's more weak and cold than it is hot. And as I read this text, I can't help but think if I feel that way, how many others struggle with those same things? Asking the question, maybe not out loud, but thinking at God, how on earth did you save me? How on earth can you, can you still use me? How on earth, God, are you going to sanctify me and conform me more into your image? And as I've been reading through, I told you several weeks ago, I've been reading through the letters of John Newton, the author of one of the greatest hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. And he said in one of those letters near the end of his life, by this point I thought that I would be different. I thought that I would always love to pray and not be jealous and never be controlled by money and love God always in a fervent state. And as I read that, I thought, that's me. That's me. And he said that the reason that God allows us to continue to struggle all of our life with indwelling sin is that he wants us to grow ever more amazed at his grace in our life. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones that said that the ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. And the sad reality is that most people measure their spirituality by some perfection in one, of the, in one of the spiritual fruits that we see in Galatians 5. Man, I've arrived because look at all the love in the world that I have. 
Look at all the joy in my life. See, I'm fake smiling every time I walk in church. Look at how much patience I have with all the people and the world that I come across. And the problem on this side of heaven is that we have our sinful flesh. And it's always at work against the spirit inside of us. Always. And if we constantly are looking at that sinfulness inside of us, then we are always going to be discouraged. Always. God wants us to look outside at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because on this side of heaven, church, spiritual growth is not getting to a place where you don't feel like you need God's grace anymore, but quite the opposite. It's ever growing, it's growing ever more wondrous of God's grace. And in turn, when we grow ever more wondrous of the grace of God, we, we want to stop doing the things that cause a break in that relationship. Paul would, from this point in the text, be filled with that exact wonder. And instead of hypocrisy, Paul became characterized by transparency in his life. For those of you who went through the Romans Bible study that we had almost a year ago now, do you guys remember Paul said, I am the chief of the sinners? The law tells me not to covet, and I covet. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. Paul didn't say any of those things because he wanted people to admire his flesh. He said them because he wanted people to run to his Savior. And I'm so tired, so tired of listening to preachers and and Bible teachers and, and read after authors who make us think that they have it all together all the time. And I, I, don't, I don't say this in, in, a, in, in, a, in a prideful or a mean way at all. I hear preachers stand before their churches and they act as though they have everything all together. And I, I think every time I hear it and see it, you can't help me then. You can't help me. If you have it all together, you can't help me. I can't help you as your pastor if we're not honest about the evils of our own heart. I told you just a few weeks ago, we have to be like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And when you and I cease to become or be a beggar, then we can no longer help each other. But after that happened, Paul became a man that was characterized by graciousness and, and generosity. I mean, the man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter of the Bible, love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, love believes all things, love doesn't keep any records of wrong. He was a murderer. Paul said in, in Romans 9, after the fact, I would die and go to hell for you if I could. That doesn't sound like a murderer to me. Previously, Paul had bound his enemies in chains and hauled them off to prison. And now he's saying, I will gladly go to hell in your place. Those who believe and behold the gospel become like the gospel. 
I told you that Saul's new name, Paul, meant small. Ananias, the, the man who came to him, his name meant the Lord is gracious. Paul would spend the rest of his days talking about himself as a small man who was the recipient of the lavish grace of God. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace, Paul would teach, that we have been saved by faith in what Christ has done. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. It's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about your success in doing, but your faith in what's already been done. It is by grace that you have been saved through, pay, through faith, Paul would say, and that it's nothing of ourselves, not according to our works, so that way no one is able to boast. But as you remember the grace of Jesus Christ towards us, Paul said that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor so that you and I could become rich. Doesn't that make you want to be that way with other people? I mean, we who have received Christ's unspeakable gift, Paul says, won't we be kind to one another? Won't we be tender-hearted? Won't we forgive? Oh, pastor just hit something. And instead of fear, Paul said there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Instead of jealousy and pride, he said, let this mind be in, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Who though he was God, he took it upon himself to come in the form of a servant. Instead of anger and wrath, Paul says to put away all malice and evil speaking. Never avenging yourself, refusing to pay evil for evil and overcoming evil with good the way that God overcame us. Instead of picking up your sword to repay, we pick up the cross to see someone saved. Instead of our rights to demand, we take up a towel to serve. That was Paul's experience. The gospel did what religion could never do. It changed Paul's heart. I grew up in a church that was filled with religiosity. And the one thing I learned coming out of that experience is that religion can make you conform, but it can never transform you. God has been pursuing you but we've often been blind to it, which leads me to the third sign or symptom, and it's that your past does not disqualify you from God's grace. Paul was a murderer, church. And I use this next phrase lightly, but his conversion scandalized Ananias. It scandalized the church I mean, Jesus had to say in verse 15, He is my chosen instrument. Because real grace is always in a place that seems scandalous to our finite mind. You know that, that man, John Newton, I was just talking about a few minutes ago? I want you to see what he wrote. It's going to come to the screen. In one of his letters, he said that there is no commerce so iniquitous 
so cruel, so oppressive as the African slave trade of which I was involved. The slave trade was almost unjustifiable, but inattention and personal interest prevented me for a time from perceiving the evil. But now I am bound in conscience to take shame to myself by a public confession, which, however sincere, comes too late to prevent or repair the misery and mischief to which I have formerly been accessory. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once and never got over the scandal of grace that was extended towards me. After this moment, John Newton penned the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. In some hymnals here in America, people have changed the words wretch like me to saved and set me free. And if you do a little bit of research as to why it was changed, you will find out that it was changed because some churches did not like the concept of being called wretches that needed to be saved. And many of them said that it was too humiliating to be called a wretch. But the Bible teaches that we were wretched. It teaches us that. Do you remember Aslan from the story? His claws had to go deep into the very heart of Eustace in order to change him, to save him. So church, if you and I are not wretched, then God's grace is not that amazing. There are two things. There are two things about the gospel that are really difficult for us to believe. One, that you are so bad that Jesus had to die to save you. And two, that he was so gracious that he was glad to die to save you. Which one do you have more trouble believing? Because conversion is a dual realization in Christianity. It is, I am worse than I ever dreamed, and God is more gracious than I ever hoped he could be. If Jesus saved Saul the murderer, and he saved John Newton the slave trader, don't you think he can save a wretch like you and I? God's been pursuing you. You've often been blind, and you have thought that your past disqualifies you. Which leads me to the last point this morning. Your past does not disqualify you from future usefulness. I want you to look back with me at verse 15. Luke says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God took the greatest enemy of the church with the blood of God's saints upon his hands and he put that man before the kings with the salvation of the world upon his lips. Never forget, church, that the the greatest missionary was once the greatest enemy of the church. And here is one of the greatest mysteries that I've ever found in the gospel. The greater the damage of sin, the greater your usefulness in redemption. 
It's as if God loves to take the greatest brokenness so that he can show his great power to save and change you. So to Paul, he says, get up, you murderer. I have a plan for your life. You're going to see saved the lives of millions of people. And so I have a question for us as we begin to land the plane. What in your life makes you feel disqualified? What is it? Some horrible, embarrassing mistake from your past? Been in prison? You have a bad marriage? You've been divorced? Your kids don't follow the Lord anymore? You have a struggle with pornography or drinking or drugs? Continual struggle that you've had for years and years and years in the flesh. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that God allows us to be afflicted so that we might comfort those with the same comfort that we received from Him. That's why God allows, or that's why God has saved you from the circumstances that He saved you from. So you would be able to better help those that have found themselves in those same circumstances. Sometimes the very sin that you struggled with and the pain that you went through makes you uniquely qualified to speak redemption to others that are in that same condition. The very fountain of the Christian life is the experience of grace. And you and I will never, ever, ever move on from that fountain of grace. You don't grow as a Christian by moving on from the gospel. We grow by consistently going deeper into the gospel. John Newton, Amazing Grace, he said, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God praise than when we first begun. And so do you see how God has been pursuing you in this life? Do you recognize the areas of blindness that you have? Do you realize how wretched you are? And at the same time, do you believe that Jesus can save you? Do you believe that he can change you like he said that he could? And do you believe that he's got a plan for your life? Maybe it's not on the mission field in some foreign third world country where you live in a, in a grass hut with dirt floors. Maybe it is. But God stands here This morning, ready with outstretched arms to say, no matter where you find yourself, I'm waiting for you. Whether you have no relationship with God at all and you've never been saved by that grace, you you can do so right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for for some altar call with, with, you know, just as I am playing in the background. And maybe you're like, well, pastor, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, right? There's still something here for you too. I think all of us have blind spots in this life. Things that need to be changed. Scales that need to be ripped off of us. 
And so Jesus is waiting for you this morning. Jesus is waiting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now, Lord, and I just thank you for the truth that we find here in your word. I thank you, God, that you do pursue us, that you bring grace and mercy and and, and goodness and kindness towards us, even when we are like the murderer and the adulterer, God, when we are unfaithful to you. God, I, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us the areas of blindness in this life, that you would convict us, And dare I even ask, Lord, that you would make us so uncomfortable in that sin that you would bring us to our knees like you brought Paul, Lord, so that there's nowhere to go except for to reach to your open hands. And whatever it is, Lord, that lies in our past that oftentimes cripples us from from your work, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us through your scripture what you say about us as a child of God. That we are chosen We are redeemed. God, that you never leave us or forsake us, that we don't have to live in fear. God, that you give us uh, a mind that is filled with power and, and love, that you instill in us peace and patience and joy. God, remind us of those things this morning. And at the same time, Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength and the boldness to be prepared for however it is that you're going to use us. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and for your faithfulness to us. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.